First of all, a very warm welcome to all of you to this event at the Ledbury Poetry Festival. We always have to start with our thank yous, and first of all, the Arts Council England, who are generously supporting the Ledbury Poetry Festival in a number of ways. And for this particular event, the Bristol Poetry Centre is sponsoring the event, and it's a centre which Professor David Punter has a great deal to do with. It does a great deal of work in promoting education about poetry and poetry readings and generally bringing poetry to a, a wider number of people. Uh, Tabish Kerr, born and educated in Bihar in India, pursued most of his education there and then did a number of further degrees culminating in a PhD in Copenhagen. He's now an associate professor in the Department of English there at the University of Aarhus. He's the author of fiction, non-fiction and poetry and his recent novel, Just Another Jihadi Jane, was published to great critical acclaim and was shortlisted for various festival book prizes. His poetry book collections, I don't think, are published in this country, but he has written Where Parallel Lines Meet and Man of Glass in 2010. Professor David Punter is Professor of Poetry at the University of Bristol. He's had a long and distinguished career as a literary critic and has published on Gothic and post-colonial literature. He also finds time, I don't know quite how, to have training in psychoanalysis. And also, he's just completed a degree in law. I think we would have to say he is a Renaissance man. <laughs> And David Punter has also written books of poetry and has done readings in Bristol and beyond Bristol. So we're delighted this afternoon to welcome these two and to hear their combined conversation and poetry. Thank you very much. Thank you, And um, uh, Tabish and I are old um, friends and um, accomplices, um, so it's a delight to be uh, sharing a platform with um, Tabish Kerr here this afternoon. Is this microphone working? I can't quite tell. Yeah, jolly good. Um, so in a little while we're going to have a conversation that I hope you might find enlightening. But if you don't, stick around and see whether you find bits of it enlightening. So, so don't. But to begin with, I'm going to read a couple of poems, and then so is, um, so is Tabish. Um, and the, uh, the first poem I'm going to read is called In the Garden of You. Um, and I, um, I wrote this uh, quite a long time ago um, in Shanghai. And for those of you who know Shanghai, then there is in the very centre of the, the city, even now in the centre of the ultra-modernised city, a small Chinese garden called the Garden of You. And you, uh, in that sense, means a garden which was developed and owned by the Dukes of you. Why you? But I play, I suppose, upon the trope of you as the second person, as Y-O-U, in what is essentially a love poem. A thousand go... Oh, and I should say... I'm sorry. I should say that all of the main names in this poem are names of parts of that garden. Sorry. A thousand goldfish radiate in the pool before the hall of the jade mountain. Then spin towards the bread you've thrown, packing themselves in deep below the rose stone. On the bridge of nine corners, thin shadows hover carved in bone, smoke grey and cloud pink. Stepping through the dragon door, you feel the garden remaking itself around you. Each delicate edge 
adjusted in the hall of perfect harmony. I can place you in a myriad settings, moving from one intricate lattice to another. In the hall of the three ears of grain, there are antlers, and each chair is a crimson sculpted chalice to hold you poised. Tiny floating trees, misted with blue, are your attendants. Ripples in the pathways and the scrolled woods stain deferentially record your every movement. When you stop, the garden waits a little. Then the hall of crafted singing opens like an offering hand and the tenuous trees quiver. Like rain and your reflection caught in every drop, the antique music comes and with it the deer springing from the mountains to you, across you's clear and bounding river. The time I wrote that, I, I, I was also I, obviously interested in um, um, old Chinese poetry from the, the Sung Dynasty, and I was lucky to, to find a, um, uh, a person who was willing to um, uh, translate for me some Sung Dynasty poems, um, and was then modest enough to invite me to, um, um, as he put it, um, English them, which is not, not at all fair, actually. I mean, he, he did wonderful. Anyway, these are the results of, of his um, efforts and of mine. Um, his name was Sun Jian, um, and I'm indebted to him for this poem, version of a poem, translation. I don't really know. Um, it's called A Journey to the Village. Threading the mountain path on horseback, while yellow chrysanthemums are budding, I ride aimlessly and at leisure in an urging mood. The noises from deep valleys in ten thousands mingle with the natural sound at dusk. Mountain peaks stand silent in the setting sun. Falling leaves of birch and pear colour like rouge. Buckwheat blossoms, snow white, send forth fragrance. What has made me suddenly melancholy after these chantings? The village bride, trees on the plain, all are my native land. I thought you were going to read three. I was going to read three. But I'll now use three stories. Thank you to the Poetry Festival organizers. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to David and his centre at Bristol for bringing me over. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I started off as a poet. Almost every, every writer starts off as a poet. Uh, then of obviously coming from a small town, middle class circles, I had to earn a living. I ended up working as a journalist, and now I work as an academic. Uh, both these professions are not really the best professions to enter if you want to keep on writing poems. <laughs> so poetry requires a lot of space. And I, I, I'm always surprised that David had managed to keep on writing poetry. <laughs> so, uh, in my case, I have, but I've written Fewer and fewer poems. Uh, I wrote my first collection, my first mature collection. I published in the year 2000, and it took me 10 years before I could collect coherent poems into my next collection, which is Man of Class. By then, I was in Denmark, and this uh, collection contains poems that are based on work by three other writers, all from different cultures, writing in different languages. All three have 
I consider extremely influential, um, uh, who have influenced my own work. Uh, Kalidas, the Sanskrit poet from the 5th, 6th century, writing in Sanskrit. Um, and uh, Ghalib, the early 19th century Persian Urdu poet. And H.C. Anderson, whom you would all be familiar with, known as the writer of fairy tales. Though, of course, he was writing stories as far as he was concerned. Um, so I'll read out two poems which are based on two of his fairy tales, which you would recall. Uh, the first one is based on his uh, fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, which I don't need to remind you of. Uh, my poem is called Immigrant. It hurts to walk on new legs, the curse of consonants, the wobble of vowels. And you for whom I gave up a kingdom can never love that thing I was. When you look into my past, you see only weeds and scales. Once I had a voice, now I have legs. Sometimes I wonder, was it fair trade? Uh, the second one is based on the Snow Queen. Again, you'll recall the Snow Queen. And this is written at a ghazal. Now, ghazals have become a form of poetry in English too, but usually when people write ghazals in, in English, uh, they, they see them as couplets that have a thematic connection. But traditionally in Urdu and, and, and Farsi, ghazals contain couplets that need not have a thematic connection. Uh, this one is called Couplets in Ice. I divided up into six um, uh, couplets, and that has to do with the f form of the story that H.C. Anderson, uh, Anderson, I keep on pronouncing in the Danish way, H.C. Anderson <laughs> wrote. Uh, <coughs> couplets in Ice, one. The walls of your palace are made of snow. The game of reason is cold and slow. Two, you cannot tell your love apart. The queen of ice sits in your heart. Three, how well we understand in tongues unknown the word that in English is pronounced alone. Four, always the crow knows where your love went, though he speaks harshly and with an accent. Five, how soon it happened, just a while ago, you held my hands and walked in sand or snow. Six. The last story cannot be told. Its words were patented and sold. So, conversation. we're here to have a conversation. <laughs> it's a bit strange, but, but um, there we go. Um, actually, uh, um, it arises from what you were, something you were saying just now, I think, about, um, about that last poem. Um, and it's about the um, issue of, of, um, of form and content, the old, old issue. Um, I was at um, a meeting of some fellow poets the other night, and I presented a poem to them. And they said, it's too poetical, they said. Remove this bit and that, they said. Turn it into the vernacular, they said. And I said, yes, well, I could do that, but you haven't noticed that the whole thing is written in rhyming iambic pentameters. And they said, well, basically, um, I was going to say a rude word, but, but uh, uh, no, blow that is, is what they actually said. Um, and so I was left in a bit of a quandary as to whether to revise this poem, which I thought was rather, not perfect, but pretty damn good in yeah, terms yeah. of form. Do you see what I'm yeah, getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no I, I think that is a very difficult question because, I mean, I like using form and also like moving away from form, depending on what I want to say. Uh, and I train myself to write in different metrical patterns. Uh, the ambic pentameter is, of course, what comes most naturally to all of us in English, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and it's the metrical form that's been used by most English poets. Uh, unfortunately, 
that kind of uh, metrical training is no longer imparted to students. I teach English, and, 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 and uh, most of the students just cannot tell meters apart. Uh, it, it's, it's considered to be, to be too scholastic if you write in that way. And I can see why, because of course you can also go bing, bang, bing, bang, bing, bang all the time without really having anything to say. But on the other hand, as T.S. Eliot said, uh, and T.S. Eliot obviously was one of the guys who started <laughs> all the fun. <laughs> so, so he said, there is no verse that is free. You need to be aware of form. Uh, and what are you going to free yourself of? Unless you're aware of what you're trying to get, get rid of, you cannot get rid of it. I mean, the form is always there. It's always lurking there. And in that sense, if one goes back to form, I always find it, and I go back to form quite often too, I mean, strict form. Um, uh, I, I find it very difficult when some poets tend to consider that a flaw per se. I mean, that, that's my position on that. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, I mean, some of it also has to do with the fact that um, poetry is seen as closer to oral forms, uh, songs and so on and so forth. For instance, Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize for literature. Uh, he writes songs. He writes great songs. And he's a great singer. Uh, some people would question whether he writes great poetry. Uh, again, no one can question the fact that actually songs and poems are related. So how does one settle that matter? <laughs> I guess you see, see the problems and the connections. <laughs> we could have a very long conversation about this, which, which, we, which we shan't, I, I promise you. But, but, but what you remind me of is the possibility, I don't know what you think about this, that poetry, as we have envisaged it for quite a long time, is in any case going in two different directions, and they're often referred to as page poetry and performance or spoken word poetry, and I wondered what your views might be on, on, on where we are at the moment in terms of, well, let's put it rather grandiosely, the future of poetry. Well, when it comes to performance poetry or, say, reggae poetry or what we often call dub poetry, uh, though, I mean, for instance, if you think of Lyndon Quincy Johnson, one of the biggest of reggae poets, he prefers the word reggae, not dub poet. <laughs> so, uh, and if you, if you really look at his poems, they there are metrical patterns there. It's not as if he, I mean, he, he, he's quite cleverly trying to make us think that he's writing in a purely oral manner. But no, there's a lot of reading behind it. If you think of uh, uh, this famous uh, poem by this British, uh, Caribbean British performance poet, I've forgotten his name, all of you know him. Uh, the poem is called Listen, Mr. Oxford Don. Uh, it's, it's a great poem, and when you read it, you, uh, this is, this is a, an immigrant speaking to an Oxford Dawn. Uh, the poem from the 1960s is playing on these ideas of the Caribbean immigrant as being basically uh, a maga and so on and so forth. And, 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 and so it's all written in that uh, dialect and with that attitude. But if you break the poem down, you come across so many deep literary references and, uh, and, and such clever use of form, you know that this guy knows everything about form. There's a lot of thought behind it. Uh, so, so uh, I, I mean, uh, I think when it comes to performance poetry, the, the kind of poetry that appeals to me is poetry that is informed by form. Um, of course, not all performance poets do that, but for me, that is... The difference between them and, and, and performance poets who are actually quite aware of form and literary tradition um, is basically the difference between good poets and bad poets, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but what about you, David? I mean, you teach poetry. I almost never teach poetry. So You don't teach poetry? No, because, I mean, Denmark... If, if English is not their native language, so they tend to get very frightened of poetry. If you want to, f want to make sure that only five students sign up for your course, you offer a course in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, but I don't teach poetry either, oh. uh, despite my title, because <laughs> uh, uh, um, I'm, sure um, I'm not sure that you can. No. Um, 
you can teach and work with those those forms ah. uh, uh, and those um, that scaffolding mm. as to what a poem might need to have and to to shed. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of um, uh, 18th century poetry, um, you know, Pope and, and, and the others, who um, <clears throat> had these rigid formats. But of course, what we enjoy in Pope is when they shed those formats and, and the, the um, uh, rhythms go all over the place uh, and the I am is no longer there and you're in the presence of strange trochees and uh, all sorts. Well, that may not be how we phrase it to ourselves, but, but I think that is what, what we find um, punchy and strange in, in that apparently formal poetry. <clears throat> it's always the break with, 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 uh, with form. Um, to address your, your question, I, I mean, I think that when I, when I wrote poetry um, early on, I think that I wrote poetry which was quite, and I don't know whether the garden of views, I think it probably is, um, that was quite um, ornate um, and quite um, poeticized. I was trying to seek a different poeticization from the Western tradition, so it's cast in a more Chinese tradition. But um, uh, I tried to become more um, spare, mm. I think, as time has gone on and to release myself a bit from that tradition but I, I take your point that there is no free verse with, with, without there being something to be free from I, I, I do think that um, I, I was going to, to read out um, um, a third poem in this first bit of the session uh, and perhaps I will now if you put up with that is that agreeable um, which I, I, think is, I, think, I think is very different but we'll see it's extremely inappropriate because <coughs> this is rather a warm lunchtime <laughs> But despite that, it's called a cold morning. And it wouldn't work if I retitled it a warm lunch. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> I could try, but no, it's not going to work. Okay, so it's called a cold morning, I have to imagine. Icicles surround the bone-cold stallion of morning. Angled fence posts not yet begun their creaking dance. The chalk men approach on frosty mud. Fields, coverlets, rippling with unconnected pattern. A generator howls through its teeth in a lonely shed. Airy cave inverted in a wide frozen sky. Down the hill slides an all-recovering bleak moisture. I think I was trying there to get away from that ornateness, that poeticization, and that was pretty spare. Well, I mean, I, I seem to have moved away from. I mean, I, I never wrote very ornate poetry, but this collection is, is sparer than my first collection. Uh, and uh, and because we are on that uh, topic, maybe I'll read out one of the poems from this co collection that is actually written in quite a strict meter. I, I really don't read it out for a number of reasons, uh, but I'll tell you the main reason. Especially, I don't read it out outside India. Uh, and the reason is that middle-class Indians, the kind of accent we have is quite easy to follow. But the one thing that, uh, that, that, that discussing our kind of English does not take into account is not really what we understand by accent, but what accent also means, which is stress. We, we put the stress on a different part of some of the words, okay? And obviously, if you write metrical verse, you have to be aware of it. So you have this choice. Are you going to stress this word as it should be stressed? Are you going to stress it the way you stress it? Well, I always write it the way I would speak it, okay? Uh, I just wanted you to be aware. But that's one reason why I'm very careful when it comes to reading out my metrical words, this one is called, again, it's based on a very short line from a story by H.C. Anderson. It's a story no one knows. It's called A Drop of Water. 
where things happen in a drop of water, okay. uh, basically. Uh, and uh, and uh, this poem is called Perspectives on a Grain of Sand. Look what we found, my children said, unfolding fists into a gift of cork, pin, caption, pebble, shred. The proof that loving eyes can sift the common silt for hidden gold, those glimmerings we lose with age as prices stacked the story told, and what is lost fills us with rage. I hold your findings, daughter, son, each little treasure you have named, and piled on my desk one by one. Only like this the world is claimed. It's not enough to find and hold. One needs to learn the art to keep what is found as if it was gold. It's love or faith, it is a leap, without which all is dropped and lost on hard, inhospitable grounds, where price is known but not the cost, and nothing can ever be found. Seems to be a result of a poem where, where the um, where the rhymes emerge yeah. organically from, yeah. from, from yeah, the, uh, the material. That's so um, that's so rare, isn't it? Um, one of the questions often asked in these um, um, sessions is um, about um, influences. Yeah. Who, who would you say are your major? Or, or perhaps you wouldn't want to say that. I mean, after all, what is an influence, and, and quite how does that work? No, I could answer that. But can can I get you to answer that question first, and then take it on? <laughs> he's, he's very tricky like that. Yeah. Good job, my friends. Eh? Uh, no, I, I, but I will answer. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yes, you certainly, you certainly could. Uh, I mean, I think um, I, I think that f for me, the question of um, influences does fall into separate, several separate categories. I mean, there are poets whom I um, admire and love and would like to write like, which is a kind of version of influence. Regrettably, those particular poets, and I'm thinking now of Dylan Thomas and more especially George Barker, whom I knew uh, many years ago, are very, very, very bad guides to how to write poetry. They're very good themselves, but trying to work within any kind of tradition that the new apocalyptics worked up is an almost certain recipe for disaster. That's my opinion. Um, influences in terms of, 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 of mood, uh, in terms of what one might be trying to capture, well, I find, and it's in many ways regrettable, but I find I can't escape from Philip Larkin. He's always there over my shoulder or, or, or leering at me in some bizarre way um, from somewhere I don't want him to be doing so, but, but he's, always, um, he's always there. Um, but I think in, 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 uh, in wider terms, I think that the question of influence has a great deal to do with um, more international experience. I, I am no kind of linguist at all, and I wish to goodness I were, but, 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 but I'm not. But I do think that, that um, trying to absorb, trying to take up um, uh, issues from, from different language poetries, from diff different cultural scenarios, I think is important. I mean, the reason I, I, I wrote that first um, that poem, which was in a book of poems called China and Glass, was because years and years ago, I found myself in China... I'll rephrase that. Uh, I was working in China. I didn't find myself in China. I, I was there because, because I'd flown there. You know, it wasn't as though I suddenly woke up and thought, my God, I'm in China. <laughs> I, I do that some nights, but, that, that, but that's irrelevant to this. I, I was working in China. I was there for six months, and this was back in the 80s, and it was so strange um, that it, 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 it jerked me into, into a re-awareness of how one might try to express the, the strange, the estranged. Uh, and I think, for me, that, that attempt to... Um, do something with the estranged. I think that, for me, is a kind of keynote to what good poetry often is, not always. Some good poetry is extremely domestic, local, regional. That's certainly true. But, but I think that that moment of estrangement is what jerks me sometimes into life, if that makes sense. No, um, I, I, I think I, I totally agree with you when it comes to some poets you greatly admire. Uh, and, and the best example would be to actually come up with 
uh, with the writer of fiction, James Joyce, for instance. Okay, I mean, there's no point trying to learn from James Joyce unless you want to learn from Dubliners. But if you're going to learn from his famous <laughs> novels, that's like shooting yourself in the head. <laughs> Those are dead ends. In the sense that these are great works, but they cannot be taken any further. T.S. Eliot is a bit like that. Dylan, very much so. Uh, Berryman. I mean, uh, uh, among poets writing today, say the the, the great. I, I, I mean, lately she's been publishing a couple of stuff that I think, a couple of books that have been kind of put together by her publishers. And uh, but 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 she has written great books. Anne Carson. If you haven't read her, you should check out. Uh, especially her book. Uh, I think. This one with red in the title, but there's another one called The Beauty of the Husband, which is, which is a kind of novella in verse. Uh, and and, and uh, every time I read her best books, I just don't know how they work. And when I figure out how they work, I know I cannot do that. I mean, I could do that, but I should not do that. Because it will not be the same. It will be something else. So, so I think that happens with a lot of great poetry, a lot of great literature. Some literature one learns from, and some literature one just admires. Uh, and, and, and in general, I feel that about influence because uh, 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 the way I see it, and again, I, I find myself influenced more by specific works than by an entire body of work. But since they're poems that I just cannot forget, I go back to them. Um, uh, of course, some poets I, I like more than some other poets, uh, but I like to see this as a, as, as a kind of uh, as a kind of wall that contains. Uh, I, I, and that's something I tell a few times when I'm supposed to teach creative writing, which I actually hate doing. And maybe we'll take it up later. <laughs> so, so, and I avoid doing that because I, because I personally believe that. Creative writing can be learned, but it cannot be taught. <laughs> so, so, but uh, so a few times I have to do that, um, uh, I, and the students ask me, "So, how do I make a space for my own writing? There's so much of it." And I say, "That's why you have to read and read and read, because this is a magic wall. It's covered with tiles. There's no space on this wall. It's totally covered with different kinds of tiles. Uh, but." If you pay enough attention to all those styles, as many of them as you can, then because it's a magic wall, a little space will open up for you, for your little tile. Okay? So that's the only way. Otherwise, this, mop, um, this wall has no space for you or me, anyone. And I, I, that's the way I feel about influence, in the sense that you have to absorb it and then just let it seep down, and then something comes out of it, instead of consciously trying to imitate someone. Of that <laughs> it's a fantastic image, that notion of the magic wall where, where a space might open up. Absolutely wonderful. Um, and you also said that um, you can learn creative writing, but you can't teach it. Do you want to say a few more words about that? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I even feel that about all of knowledge. And once, and in the days when Facebook has started, and like a fool, I got on Facebook, uh, and, and then I got off it. I have an official Facebook that's updated, but I don't have a personal Facebook, <laughs> because simply because, the, the, I mean, all kinds of people access it. And one day I remember I posted something like, uh, people cannot be taught, they can learn. A student cannot be taught, they can learn. And two of my students wrote back immediately saying, this was so depressing. You shouldn't have posted something like this. And I really felt bad about it. But in general, I do feel that, that, that people can learn. People, but they cannot be taught. I mean, there's a Chinese saying I've been told. I've, I've, known, I've, I've been to Hong Kong a couple of times, but that's about it. Um, which says that a teacher can, can open, a teacher opens a door for you. But it's up to you to enter it. Okay? Uh, and of course, creative writing, it's more so, because creative writing is creative writing. How can anyone else teach you to be creative? You have to learn yourself. And you have to learn by not just working on your strength, that's very important, but also working with your weaknesses. And that's something that a lot of people forget. It's not just the strength that counts, it's also the weakness.
Bob Dylan, there's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. You're, you're recalling that. Perhaps I'll read another poem. Well, maybe we should read a couple of poems. Should we do that? Yeah, that would be nice. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, um, I've been um, um, moving um, over the last, I suppose that's quite a long time actually, I, I'm not going to say how long, quite a long time, from I suppose more um, romantic poetry with, with, with apostrophes around the, um, the romantic, I mean, not, not, not romantic poetry, imitation of the romantic poets, that would be, that would be foolish, um, but towards more political poetry, and again I suppose with, with apostrophes around the, um, the political. Um, but where I find myself now I think is in such a, um, a dire political situation that there seems to me at the moment not a great deal of alternative to writing poetry which has at least a political inflection. And I mean the word political to encompass a wide variety of things. I don't mean party political, I mean political in the much wider sense. I mean it to include the climatological and, and so on and so forth. But some, um, some response to um, what is going on. And I sometimes watch the news and I think that what is going on is pretty much all bad. I, 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 I find it difficult to find um, good news. Um, I, part of what I do at the moment is that I... Um, write and perform poetry with a group called Bearing Witness. Um, we're around a bit, not at this festival, but we're around from time to time, and we try to articulate some of those concerns in poetry and, uh, and in song. Um, this is not a song. Um, you'll be relieved to hear, because I can't sing. This is a poem, uh, and I should say it was written uh, in response, and this comes back to something you were saying earlier on, about more ornate poetry and poetry which is more thinned down, uh, um, a response by um, a very good Bristol poet called Tony Darpino to whom I'd read some of my poems, and he said they were too, they were too fat. He said they were too lardy, that they contained too many words. He said, you want to get more skinny. As you can imagine, I said to Tony, I think I'm pretty skinny already, but, 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 but uh, never mind. I mean, he came back to me on that, and I thought, well, all right, I'll give it a whirl, I thought. And then it seemed to coincide with some thoughts I was having about austerity. I suppose. So this um, poem is called 2017, Not Now. <clears throat> is this poem skinny enough for you? I used to write in emerald and gold of hope in the dawn, evening glory. Not now. Spirits danced in hedgerows. I was an occasional victim of nostalgia. Knife crime and hatred of foreigners were foreign to me. Not now. I wasn't naive. I had a plan. The state at the mercy of capitalism would implode and there would again be a space for pleasure not now terror unleashed on gays and blacks makes me of course inarticulate once I would have screamed vivid pain not now on through the sad litany of reversal Rights lost, centuries of labour undone, unite together, don't make me laugh, not now. Outside my window, the harbour lights blink red and green, for one to outdo the other would spell calamity. Do we care? Not now. I hoped, and never really knew I was hoping, grass was green and bosses were doomed. Words would fill the page. 
Not now. But you can't ignore the rhythm building if we all march in step and keep to the line we'll straighten out this road to oblivion and banish that skinny line? Not now. All the time in the world. <laughs> no. Oh, I hadn't noticed that clock actually. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> no, no, it's still there. Uh, I, I never wear a watch, which is why I, I like having a clock in the room. <laughs> no. uh, I'll read out two short half page poems, uh, both of them based on stories by H.C. Anderson. Uh, the first one is based on Thambelina. You remember Thambelina? Okay. And it's called Prayer. In order to understand this, uh, uh, poem, you have to imagine a place like Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, well, one of those countries with what's happening there. Prayer. Grant me a little child I can hide when the mullahs come home to pray, when planes are birds of prey. Someone is smaller than my thumb I can put in my pocket and run. And uh, the next one is, is uh, based on the tinderbox. Remember the soldier coming home, meets the witch and the, the big horses and then uh, all that. You remember the story and how dense he's put in prison and all that. Uh, this one is called The Soldier Home from Iraq. What could I do being what I was? Savior of old women, their killer too. On my chest there sat a big dog, trained to get answers. Move it, jump, jump, jump! I picked up my M16A2 and shot her. There she lay, there they lay. Back home I was rich like anyone else. Princesses clutched my dog hairs in fantasy, in ecstasy. Later we slept. I had my will until. The shades of a prison house closed upon me. And I remembered I'd forgotten something. It eludes me still. Was it a candle, a wick, a tinderbox? Something to do with light, surely. Something that would have set me free. Tabish, I wonder if you could... Uh, the poems you've read from Man of Glass, um, obviously, as you say, it depends upon... Um, oh, is related to Anderson's um, mm. fairy tales. It obviously has a it has a real contemporary edge. I wonder if you could describe the book in your own terms, if that's possible, and then perhaps go on also to say something more about your recent novels, um, oh, Jihadi sure. Jane. And, sure. uh, and, uh, yeah. Oh, could I borrow a copy of my novel just to? The reason why I think I will kind of flash these covers at you is that you won't get my poetry in England unless you order it on Amazon and then probably be charged three times what they would cost you in India. <laughs> but my, my novels are available in, in, um, in England. And these are the British editions. Uh, this is the latest one, just another Jihadi Jain. This is one before that, How to Fight Islamist Terror from the Missionary Position. Uh, and they are very different, as you can imagine. The first one is a humorous take on mutual prejudices that people have uh, across cultures and religions, but also within the same culture across uh, levels of religious belief. How, for instance, religious Muslims see less religious Muslims, how less religious Muslims see religious Muslims, and so on and so forth. So that's the first one, how to fight Islamist terror on the missionary position. This is, of course, a much more serious take on a similar set of problems, uh, and, uh, and it's a much more tragic story. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't, my first four novels had nothing to do with all this. Uh, last four or five years, I've have felt compelled to write fiction that some people would consider political, and my poetry too has moved in that direction. Um, uh, I, I, I don't 
write what I consider activist um, fiction, activist poetry. I still set out to write what I think is a good poem <laughs> and a good novel. My primary purpose is not to make a political point. My primary purpose is to write a poem or a novel. But of course, we are living in a world where a lot of very serious issues have come up. And any thinking writer would be false to his craft and false to his humanity or her humanity if he was to ignore those concerns. So I think that probably explains why I have turned towards what towards more political and more topical, more contemporary topics. Uh, I mean, the novels before that were not even contemporary in the sense that um, the novel I wrote before that is called A Thing About Tax, and set in early Victorian London and early Victorian India. And then the novel before that is called Filming, and that's set in the 1930s, 40s in India in the, in the so-called Bollywood film industry. I mean, I don't like the term because Bollywood is a 1970s term. And, and when I finished writing that novel, I'd been given a two-novel contract. I'd written a novel before that, a big, big international house. I mean, uh, and, 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 and then I was writing filming, and they, they called me up, and they said, so how's your novel going on? And I said, fine. And what are you writing about? I said, the Bombay film industry. Then one year later, I get another phone call. So how's your novel getting on? And I say, fine. So how is your Bollywood novel getting on? I said, but it's not a Bollywood novel. It's the Bombay film industry novel. And they said, okay, fine. But you're writing it. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm writing it. And then I finish it and send it to them. And they said, fine, we're, we're, we are going to publish it. And then, can we call it your Bollywood novel? <laughs> and I said, no, you cannot. <laughs> and they were really seriously disappointed by the fact that I didn't let them call, call it my Bollywood novel. So, so that was how non-political, non-topical non my, yeah. my topics were. <laughs> Well, it seems as though <clears throat> we're both um, moving a bit more towards the political in, in rather different ways, I think, and that's something worth, um, worth discussing and, um, and thinking about. Um, I'm going to read one more um, poem, if I, yeah. if I may. And this, I, I think, is political, but, but more to the point, it, it's, um, it's local, and it's local to where I live in, um, in Bristol, which many of you, um, I'm sure, know. It's just down the road. Um, and... Um, I think it's quite self-explanatory, uh, and it's called Night... No, it's not. No, yes, it is. I mean, it's... Hang on, hang on, let's start again. It's called Night Laundrette North Street, but North Street is not self-explanatory, but it is a street in Bedminster uh, in Bristol. The washing machine has broken down. And so I'm in a laundrette. It took me some time to find one. There were laundrettes in the student areas, of course, for when they do their own washing. But this is not that type of place. It will close in ten minutes, I notice, at 7.30. It has no practical reason to close. It has no staff. But it is very warm like London Circle Line. And so, if it stayed open, people might come to huddle or sleep or stare until dawn at a circulation of socks. And that cannot be allowed. Everybody in a well-ordered state must go home, must be housed before curfew. I'm not sure... I'm in a well-ordered state. My laundry is all over the place. I have the wrong coins. Nor am I sure, as I peer out through the steam, that everybody here on North Street is in a well-ordered state. The ragged T-shirt and worn-out trainers of the guy at the bus stop outside suggests a person left cold perhaps very cold, by boom and bust. But in here it is warm. The shirts and knickers revolve in interesting spirals. And from down the street, as I look back, I see a promise of something cosy, well-ordered. 
And so I give my useless coins to a gruff, beseeching hand of one not housed tonight, nor ordered, nor well washed. Okay, okay, now we're going to do um, an experiment to close the, uh, to close the session. An experiment is this. I, it's a poem of mine called The, the Ballad of Refuge, and it's written in alternating stanzas, and it has two voices. And one of those voices is the voice of a... Um, how shall I put this? One is the, the, one is the voice of, of a refugee. The other one is a bit more difficult to, to pin down. It's the voice of, of a, um, somebody, a man, these are both men, I'm afraid, uh, who considers himself to be um, a British national, yeah. should we say. Is that a fit of them, British fit of them, yeah. British citizen, yeah. yes, exactly. Not, not, not a bad yeah. one. Anyway, yeah. uh, see how it... Uh, so we're going to read this to you, and Tabisha's very kindly agreed that, we, that we'll read it um, together in alternating stanzas. So. I'll be reading the British football. No? Of course. We, we turn it around. Of we, course. Yeah. We sort of thought it would be too predictable if I did the refugee. <laughs> Not that I've ever been a refugee. <laughs> and I'm experiencing the uh, words of a refugee. Probably not terribly well, but I shall do I did write them after all. Okay. So... The Ballad of Refuge. I come in fear. The wheels, the stuttering engine, by road or wave, the endless killing payments, bit by bit, my mind returns to rubble. You come in fear. The hunched back fail, bravado. They make me squirm. You have no place here, brother. Get back, for you remind me of my weakness. I starve. I thirst. I'm out there in my millions, teeming, weeping. Just allow me, brother, one foot on land. I'll work hard for my pittance. You starve, you thirst. What of me, of my neighbours, struggling in an austere land? The steel plant silent. My skills no longer fit. My hands are idle. My hopes are gone. My suffering gods won't travel. My women cannot see. Their eyes are blinded by the long dust, the silent days of torture. My hopes are gone. You come and displace me. The silent mills and fields, they scorn and mock me. The Union Jacks are shroud, all's ripe for burning. I call to you. Across the long dark waters... Carrying a load of trinkets not worth selling, umbrellas, handbags, at the gangmaster's calling. You call to me. I stop my ears with plaster. My sons and daughters can't afford their schooling. My hospitals are full, their asylums broken. My last cry sinks. Protect me from this hardness, this cold that shrinks my soul. Pity me, brother, or think on me, adrift on the long night's calling. My last cry, thanks. Protect me from this falling. The bailiffs come, the sheets won't disentangle. My homeland's gone. God help us all this winter. Thank you. Thank you.